Hello everybody. This is the tenth and final sermon in our series looking at the book of Revelation. Today we're looking at the passage that begins in verse 9 of chapter 21 and takes us through to the end of chapter 22. The hope unveiled this week is that one day all our hopes will be fulfilled. If you were to ask one of the children in our junior church to draw a picture of heaven, what would they draw? Obviously, it would vary from child to child, but in essence, you would get a collage of all their favourite things. There would be ponies and palaces, playgrounds and parties. There'd be all their family and friends and all their most loved pets. There'd be pizza and ice cream, chocolate and coke, footballs on the beach and swings in the trees. There'd be a whole collection of images for just one or two details would not be enough. In the end, in front of them would be a mosaic of their dreams. Revelation finishes in this way. There is a whole series of pictures for one or two would not be enough to communicate the glory that awaits us. And they are just pictures. No human being can fully know what eternity will be like. So symbols and images are used to convey what words could not express. For example, we read of trees bearing fruit every month, but how do you have months when there is no sun? We read of a wall circling a city, but how do you have a boundary when there's nothing outside it? As we read these chapters, we should realise that we've entered the realm of the ineffably sublime, as the great hymn writer put it. What is fascinating about these chapters is that in a very real way, they are the fulfilment of the dreams of the Jews. Nothing here is random. Revelation 21 and 22 are made up of a whole kaleidoscope of images from the Old Testament. As this sermon progresses, I will give you some of the major references, but I could not possibly share them all. Two out of every three verses contain one. Suffice it to say that eternity will be the realising of all the hopes of God's people for the last 4,000 years. The completion of all God's promises and prophecies. And it's because we know for certain that all our dreams will be fulfilled that we can hold on through the trials and tribulations of the present. With that in mind, I want to share one final word about hope before we begin looking at the text. And that is this. The Christian hope is to be lived. This week I conducted a funeral service. I did not know the lady, but from the stories of her family, she came across as a really kind and gentle person. However, there was a great sorrow in the air as I met with them to put the service together. Four years ago, this lady had been bereaved. Her life partner had sadly died. The family said it broke her heart, and from that day onwards, she lost the will to live. This poor lady could no longer find any meaning in her days. The end of Revelation is there to ensure that for Christians, this never happens. That is not to say Christians won't experience great grief or sadness, for the whole of the rest of this letter has told us we will. 
Rather, the hope that believers have is so strong. It means that every day has purpose and potential. And the letter finishes by calling us to live that out. The Christian hope is not just good news for the day we die. It is a promise that transforms the present. It's not pie in the sky, but the reason to really live in the world as we know it. The same world that one day will be caught up into God's new heaven and earth. Let us see how all this works. In the previous passage, we saw Jesus, the Messiah, win the final victory over evil. On his return, the devil and its schemes will be removed from the world, paving the way for heaven to come to earth. Last week, we heard God say that he would make everything new. After final judgment, a new age will begin, the eternal age of his kingdom. What we have now from verse 9 of chapter 21 onwards are some poetic descriptions of what it will be like when heaven and earth join together. Previously, it was described as the wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. Now we have descriptions of a holy city and a healing garden. I'm going to draw out the main elements of these descriptions that we need to understand and hold on to. These are the traits of glory, if you like. The first thing we need to know about our eternal future is that it will be glorious. In verse 11, the description of the heavenly Jerusalem begins with the shining brilliance of radiant jewels. God's glory fills the city and it's spellbinding. We cannot fully describe what the new world will be like, but our immediate reaction will be, wow, wow, this is glorious. Verses 9 and 10, which act as the introduction to this city, directly relate to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 17, which led into the description of despicable Babylon, the worldly city of vice. When we reach glory we will wonder what we ever saw in earthly temptations. We will puzzle over just what it was in human structures that tore us away from the path of faith. Earthly wonders will pale into insignificance. The new Jerusalem will be the dazzling opposite to the sin-soaked cities of power and violence present in our world today. What this means for those believers who fought the temptations and withstood the trials, those who had the courage to come out of all that was corrupt, even when threatened with persecution, is that when they reach glory, they will declare aloud, truly our struggle was worth it. Be in no doubt, our future is glorious. The second set of images we come across in this chapter tell us that our future will be secure. In verse 12, we read that the holy city will be surrounded by a high wall. You might like to think of the walls that surround certain estates on Isla, or the city walls of places like York or Durham. 
City walls prevent bad things coming in and good things from falling out. In the ancient world, far more than today, having a high city wall meant that the residents had nothing to fear. We are told that within this wall are 12 towering gates. But notice what it says later in verse 25. These gates are never shut. Again, this is an image of security. Open gates mean there is no threat of attack from outside. Only the promise of more blessing coming in. Yet still the images pile up. In verse 5 of chapter 22, we read that there is no more night in this city. Nighttime is when crime happens. Robbers and villains commit their offences and scurry away under the cover of darkness. Nighttime is when plans are hatched and evil schemes are plotted. Nighttime is when the monsters of our imagination skulk in the shadows. In glory, there will be no night. There will be no ill deeds. There will be nothing to be afraid of. Evil will have been eradicated and we will never be able to lose our place. We will be totally secure. The third set of images describe a place that is totally complete. In verse 12, we read that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are on the gates. In verse 14, we read that the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundations. This city is going to be the place where at last all God's people are brought together. All God's plans and purposes from Old and New Testament will be fulfilled. God will have nothing left to do. We see again this image of completeness in the dimensions of the city given in verses 15 to 17. The city is vast. It has to be to fit all God's people down through the ages and right across the world. 12,000 square stadia is 1,400 square miles. To give you an indication, Glasgow is just 68 square miles. But remember, these are pictures, not literal measurements. What we are supposed to see in this number of 12,000 stadia are the numbers 12 and 1,000. These are important numbers in Hebrew thinking. 12 is the complete number made up of the number for God, 3, and the number for the world, 4, multiplied together. A thousand is the round number used for a lot. Twelve thousand is a very large, but most importantly, fully complete number. When Jesus returns, all things will be made complete. I'm so looking forward to this. As a perfectionist who struggles with anxiety and underlying autistic tendencies... I never feel as though my work is done. I find it almost impossible to rest. In glory, I will finally know completeness. My soul will know peace. And it won't have come from my work, my crazed drive to improve things. It will have come through God. I read about the completeness of the heavenly city and breathe a huge sigh of relief. I encourage us all to do the same. The next set of images relate to purity. 
In verse 18, the city is described as being made of pure gold, which is as pure as glass. Then in verse 21, the streets are described as pure gold, this time as pure as transparent glass. Then most wonderfully of all, in verse 27, we are told that no impure thing will ever enter God's city. That is why this can only come after the final judgment of the previous chapter. All sin and evil, all that is shameful and deceitful, must first be removed from the world. We are left in no doubt then that this is the holy city of the holy God. What will glory be like? We don't know exactly, but it will be perfect. It will be pure. So far then, we've thought about some wonderful traits to eternity. It will be glorious and secure, complete and pure. But these four things are only really the introduction. The best is yet to come. By far the most important thing we need to know about the new heavens and earth is that it is the place where God dwells with his people. This is where we come across the reams of Old Testament imagery. I mentioned a moment ago that the holy city in this vision is 12,000 stadia square, but that's not quite true. Verse 16 tells us that it's 12,000 stadia cubed. It's 12,000 stadia high, as well as long and wide. Now, this is not an image of towering skyscrapers that defy belief. It is much better than that. There is significance in the cube. What was a cubic in shape in the Old Testament? The Holy of Holies, first in the temple and then in the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies was the most sacred place. Only the high priest could ever enter it, and even then on only one day of the year. What made it sacred? It was the place that God's presence dwelt. God, of course, is everywhere, but he chose to make himself particularly present in this cubic space at the heart of the temple, in the heart of the city, in the heart of the nation. Can you see what this is saying? God is now fully present in the whole city. All his people have access to him. All people can see him face to face. The imagery goes on. In verses 19 to 20, we get a list of precious stones that the foundations of the city are built of. In the Old Testament, these 12 stones were found on the breastpiece worn by the high priest. The priest's job was to minister God's presence to the people. Well, now the city itself ministers God's presence because he fills it. Still the pictures roll on. In verse 22, we discover that there is no temple in the city. To understand this, you need to understand the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament. As said a moment ago, it was the place that God dwelt. So it's the place you went to for help and to offer sacrifices to obtain forgiveness. Also from the temple, the priest taught about God and gave aid to the poor. In glory, there does not need to be a temple. There are no poor to feed, sick to heal or sins to forgive. No one needs to be taught about God, for they all know him. His glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. There is no need for a building or priesthood to mediate an encounter with God, for all have direct access. 
Are we getting the message? Just in case we aren't, one final metaphor is thrown in with verse 23. In a new world, there'll be no sun or moon because God's personal presence gloriously lights everything up. The lamb is the lamp, just as Jesus described himself to be the light of the world. Of course, with no sun and no moon, there's also no time. This is eternity we're talking about. But what this vision is bending over backwards to tell us is that this eternity is spent with God. The God who made us and loves us so much that he gave his own son to save us. Nothing could be better than this. Nothing could be more important. The Christian hope is nothing less than to dwell in the presence of God forever. After that, any other detail is going to seem like an addition stuck on the end. But the first five verses of chapter 22 teach us something really important. They put the glory of God's dwelling in its proper context. Where is this heavenly city going to be? It's going to be on earth. Our earth. Chapter 21 of Revelation began with the declaration of a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven and earth come together and all things are perfected. The meaning of the Greek word new here does not mean something totally different. It means renewed or glorified. In Genesis 1, we discovered that God made the heavens and the earth. And when he saw what he had made, he saw that they were very good. We need to get this message. God's creation is good. He loves it. Therefore, he's not going to scrap it as if just keeping the heaven bit will keep him satisfied. The whole story of the gospel has not just been to save human beings. It's been to save creation as a whole. This is why Revelation, and indeed the whole Bible, finishes where everything began, in the garden of Genesis 2. It began in Eden, and it ends in Eden. Only this time, paradise has got even better. In Genesis 2, there were four rivers. Now they are united as one mighty river of blessing that brings refreshment and reinvigoration to all life. In Genesis 2, there was a tree but it came with a warning. If Adam and Eve ate its fruit, they would know God's curse. In the new Eden, the tree of life brings healing. Healing of all people. We are all encouraged to eat the fruit. What a glorious picture this is. Verse 2 tells us that the leaves of the tree bring healing to the nations. What a promise to our war-torn world and those Black Lives Matter protesters. All people from all nations and backgrounds will rest in its shade. Suddenly we realise then that in Genesis 2, the garden was perfect because it was fit for purpose. Human beings were still to multiply and fill it so it could be tended and nurtured to its fulfilment. In Revelation 22, as the new Jerusalem enters the garden to become God's garden city... We see that everything is perfect because now everything is complete. The story of the Bible is paradise, paradise lost, paradise regained and then improved. 
This seems counterintuitive. How can paradise get better? This is meant to stretch our minds. But we get an important clue in this passage that should truly astound us. Into Eden comes all the creativity of human beings that has brought glory to God. In verses 24 and 26 of chapter 21, we read of the nations and the kings of the earth bringing their splendour into God's holy city. This is an image taken from Isaiah 60, where kings of the earth brought gifts from their lands into Israel. Human beings were made in God's image. God is the creator, so we were made to be creative. What these verses tell us is that some human culture is worthwhile and will exist in a purified form in glory. So there will be a legacy to great art and great music and great writing there. We may find a Rembrandt or a Caravaggio, a Handel Oratorio or a Wesleyan hymn. Just as Christ glorified God through his death, and so the nail marks were still present on his resurrected body, so the things that we have done that have brought glory to God will find representation in eternity. This is what I meant at the beginning when I said that the Christian hope gives purpose to every day of our life on earth. Because the earth will be renewed rather than destroyed, because heaven is coming here, what we do in our lives matters. What we co-create with God matters. There is an old Dutch hymn that puts it this way. Nothing here is permanent. Everything, no matter how beautiful, will one day perish. But what was done out of love for Jesus will keep its worth and remain. We are now, finally, in a position to summarise the Christian hope as revealed by the letter of Revelation. We do not have the words or understanding to fully do it justice, but we can collate the collage or stand back and look at the mosaic. When Christ returns, the devil and its schemes will be defeated. Evil will be removed from the world, never to return. Heaven and earth will come together and all will be made new. Believers that died before Christ's return and those alive on that day will come together in their new resurrection bodies and be joined in eternal marriage with Jesus. There'll be no more death or mourning, crying or pain. Our place of residence will be glorious and secure, complete and pure. We will live with God on earth in his perfected creation forevermore. We don't have the words to describe this now. We probably won't have the words right then. We will simply say, wow, God, this is good. You are amazing. This brings us to the end of Revelation. We've been through 10 weeks where each time we have seen a new part of the Christian hope unveiled before us. There is only one question left now for us to answer. How are we to respond to the hope we have found? And respond we must. 
Remember that Revelation was never a theological treatise. It was never dusty academia. It was a letter written to real people facing real difficulties, seeking to offer real help. But it would only help the people of the first century if they put it into practice what they learnt. And the same is true for us as we read it today. The final verses of the letter form an epilogue indicating what we should do. First of all, we should praise God. At the end of his vision, John feels he must fall down in worship. It's his instinctive response. Nothing else is appropriate. But rather bizarrely, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 22, he falls down to worship the wrong thing. He makes the same mistake he made in chapter 19 by starting to praise the angel who has shown him these things rather than God. Why does Revelation repeat this darkly comic scene? Well, to hit the point home, only God is worthy of our worship. In the first century, believers were being pressurised to worship Rome and the emperor. They were not to be fooled. Only God is worthy of our praise. The same is true today. No celebrity, sports star, politician or even family member is worthy of our praise. They cannot bring heaven to earth. We should be bowled over by the glory of the hope that we have. Praise is the right and instinctive response. But let us make sure we give our lives to worshipping the one true God and no one else. After praise, we must set about preparing. Revelation promises us that Jesus is coming back and there is nothing in the world that can stop him. No virus, no nuclear attack, no environmental catastrophe. He is coming back. And when he arrives, all people will come before his judgment. Therefore, we need to be ready. These final verses give us some indication on what our preparation should look like. We need to keep to God's words, verse 7. We're to obediently follow God's instruction and remain faithful to Jesus. We are to keep the scriptures open, verse 10, constantly going to them as our guide. We are to focus on God, the Alpha and the Omega, from the beginning of our life to its end. Do not turn away to false gods or idols, Roman emperors or other faiths. Christ is the one we will have to stand before. We are to confess our sins, verse 14, so we can be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And we are to come out of all that is sinful and distance ourselves from those who tried to corrupt us. In the first century, Christians were to resist Rome. Today, we are to resist those structures and people in the world that call us to compromise our faith or wander from the path. What these verses are describing is a life of discipleship a seeking after Jesus, a wanting to become more like him every day. This is how we're to prepare for his coming. We're to do it through prayer and action all our lives. Finally, we are to proclaim. The hope we have been given is too good to keep to ourselves. All people need to hear it and this is our task until our dying day. Through word and action, this task gives every moment of our lives meaning. 
Christ gave John the message of revelation so he could proclaim it to the church. The spirit within the church now leads the church to call out God's invitation to the world around us. We are to call to our friends and neighbours, come and receive from Christ. Come and receive the free gift, the water of life, the one thing you've been looking for but unable to find anywhere else. We are to offer the full gospel, not turning it to our own agenda or omitting the difficult parts like the judgment of the wicked. The world needs to hear the truth. They need to be prepared as well as us, for Christ is coming soon. We are to warn them, but we are to couch all that we do in grace, for grace is the final word. I hope we've all benefited from this study of Revelation. I would love to know what it is we are all taking away from these ten weeks. But above all, we now have the hope we need to stand in this current crisis. We know that one day all our hopes will be fulfilled and then we will need not hope anymore. And until that day comes, as individuals and as a church, we are to praise God, prepare to meet him and proclaim his love to the world.